Samuel Usk sounded the alarm during the 16th century that a wild monster of such strange form and horrible mind that all Europe trembles at mere mention of its name. That wild monster was the Spanish Inquisition, and what no one could have predicted was that Spain would remain in a state of constant terror for more than 300 years. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives to assist in the teaching of history. This is the second of five episodes in our series on the Spanish Inquisition, the establishment of the Holy Office. We have already gone into the historical roots of anti-Semitism and the unique history of religious coexistence on the Iberian Peninsula. In this episode, we will finally examine the beginnings of the Spanish Inquisition. Usk elaborates on his earlier thought by detailing that the Inquisition is a monster that rises in the air on a thousand wings. Wherever it passes, its shadow spreads a pall of gloom over the brightest sun. The green grass which it treads or the luxuriant tree on which it alights dries, decays, and withers. It desolates the countryside until it is like the Syrian deserts and sands. We know that it was King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella who would unleash this monster. But why? Following the near-complete reconquest of Spain by the dual monarchs, at this point in time, Granada was the lone holdout, Isabella and Ferdinand sought to create one homogenous nation. Isaac Cardosa wrote in 1679 that in a nation like Spain, there are many nations, so intermingled that the original one can no longer be recognized. Israel, by contrast, is one people among many, one even though scattered, and in all places separate and distinct. Cardoso's work, The Excellence of the Jews, points out the cracks in the foundations of what would become one of the most powerful empires during his era. The Jewish people have excelled at maintaining their own unique identity, and when I say excel, I mean that they have retained their cultural identity for over 4,000 years no matter where they might be living. The image of a peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews during the period of La Convencia, which happened beneath the Muslim Moors, was shattered during the 14th century. The 1300s were full of political and economic upheavals throughout Europe, and Spain was not spared. The Black Death, wars of succession, and famines devastated Spain. Generally speaking, anti-Semitism is correlated to prevailing circumstances. When things are going well, there's not really that much impetus to let hate fill the space in one's heart. Persecutions and episodes of violent hatred nearly always stem from downturns within social and economic life. As we examined previously, The Jewish people were a small minority throughout Europe, 
one that stood out from the rest of their countrymen. Their life was that of the biblical Joseph, who teaches us that when too many cows are thin, as they were for the Egypt of the pharaohs, they know that they will be the first to suffer. The religious coexistence in Spain was not a false front put on by the Spaniards. They did not suddenly reveal to their neighbors that they had been faking intolerance. Instead, what changed in the 14th century were the conditions that Spaniards lived in. People's mentalities were not what changed. Their circumstances did. The Jews of Spain were accused of poisoning the wells to bring the Black Death to Europe. The evidence was that Jews perished from the disease at far lower rates. Of course, modern understanding of science suggests that the Jews' diligence regarding hygiene kept them safer than their surrounding citizens, as the plague was spread via fleas from rats. The crisis that ensued because of misinformation regarding the origins of the plague set off a wave of persecutions. In Spain, Pamplona Jews became victims of targeted assassination. In 1328, a Franciscan monk living in Astella provoked a riot with an anti-Semitic sermon that resulted in the murder of Jews within their own homes. Twenty years later, in 1348, anti-Semitic riots consumed the new cycle of Barcelona. Historian Harry Kamen marks these riots as the official establishment or entrenchment of Spanish anti-Semitism. It also marks the introduction of usury to Spain, as well as the stereotype of a Jew that sucked the blood of the poor. The fact that in Spain, Jews were the exclusive tax collectors for the crown meant that the Jews became both the beneficiary and instrument of taxation. Oppression continued throughout the 14th century. In 1366, King Henry of Trotsamara entered the town of Burgos and demanded a huge ransom from the Jewish townspeople. When they couldn't pay up, they were sold into slavery and their synagogues were looted for the king's gain. 1378 saw the rise of Archdeacon of Eskli, Ferdinand Martinez raised his profile with a series of anti-Semitic sermons. A decade later, Martinez would fill a power vacuum that opened up in Spain after two kings passed away within mere months of each other. As a direct result of Martinez's sermons, a small pogrom occurred, killing dozens. The mayor of Seville arrested the ringleaders of the pogroms that occurred, but that only pushed the archdeacon further. The preaching that ensued resulted in one of the world's greatest Jewish massacres. On June 6, 1391, rioters entered the Jewish quarter of Seville and blocked the only two exits. The quarter was set aflame, and more than 4,000 Jews were killed on that day. For comparison's sake, 2,977 died in the September 11th attacks, nearly 1,000 less than the Great Massacre of Seville. 
That amount was enough to permanently change the trajectory of the United States of America by launching the seemingly never-ending war on terror. This number looms significantly larger when you remember that there were a lot less people living in Spain during the post-plague 14th century. The riots emanating from the Great Massacre of Seville spread throughout Spain. Synagogues were torched, Jewish houses were looted, and massacres as well as mass rape events occurred across the country. Only Navarre was spared from the anti-Semitic wave of violence. There was only one way for the Jews to avoid the violence that had arrived at their doorstep. They converted to Christianity. As a universalizing faith, Christianity is a comparatively easy faith to convert to. It is literally the spoken goal of Christians to try and convert you. Add in the fact that the Jewish faith and the Christian faith share a common beginning, and you can understand why many Jews saw conversion as their best available option. For those unwilling to convert, there were a few options still available. Refugees from Castile and Aragon made their way to Navarre, the only province of Spain that had been spared of anti-Semitic violence. Others decided that abandoning their homeland was the only option available. These individuals typically traveled to France, Portugal, and North Africa. Those that remained within their territories sought to isolate themselves by moving to smaller settlements in order to lower their community profile. The mass conversion period of Spanish Jews peaked around 1415. In that year, Catherine, the Queen Mother, forced Jews to move into ghettos, the Spanish term of which was Al-Jamas. These isolated communities were limited to only one synagogue and proceeded to single out their Jewish residents by outlawing Jews from wearing their hair and beards long. They were also required to sew a red disc on their clothing, something the Nazi Germany would likewise do with the Yellow Star of David. At this point, it became illegal for Spain's Jews to practice certain professions, such as doctors, chemists, blacksmiths, and pharmacists. Possession of the Talmud the companion to the Torah became illegal, and they were forced to attend three Christian sermons each year. One on the second Sunday of Advent, another on Easter Monday, and one whose date was given to the discretion of the local government. The deaths and forced conversions in Seville, the epicenter of the violence in 1391, made it that by 1492, there were virtually no Jews left in Seville to convert. Despite this, individual orders such as the Dominicans continued to lead mass conversion campaigns. Vincent Ferrer of Valencia showed a flair for the dramatic, as he liked to preach hatred from inside the eerie confines of cemeteries. They were timed to occur just as the darkness of night fell around him. In order to add ambiance, he was surrounded by not only penitents, but flagulence, individuals that violently whipped themselves to atone for their sins. 
Mark Meyerson's work, A Jewish Renaissance in 15th Century Spain, tells us that almost every place that he went to preach about the dangers of Jews and Judaism to Christians and of the need to isolate the Jews who still refused baptism, he incited local Christians to maltreat the Jews in some way. Today, Ferrar remains a Catholic saint. These mass conversion campaigns weren't just a convert or die scheme. Pope Benedict III attempted to academically sway the Jews by establishing the truth of Christianity via the original Jewish texts. Known as the controversy of Tortosa, the church argued that rabbis had deliberately falsified the Talmud regarding key points, such as the coming of the Messiah. They claimed that the original version contained proof that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Jewish Messiah. Between 1391 and 1415, more than half of Spain's Jews were baptized. Add in the deaths from this period, and roughly 100,000 faithful Jews were all that remained within Spain's borders. There was a slight reprieve, beginning in 1419, as kings John and Alphonse I removed most of the discriminatory measures. But the damage had already been done. In Aragon, not a single Jew held on to a position of power. In Castile, the Jews who had previously made up the entirety of the tax collectors were reduced by three-fourths. Judaism would never recover in Spain, and these events would result in the creation of an entirely new class of individuals. The Spanish would refer to them as conversos, or new Christians. These conversos were individuals that had converted to Christianity. Because of the events we just described, the vast majority of conversos at this time were formerly Jewish due to the fact that these conversions were either forced or done under the threat of violence, most Spaniards viewed the conversos with suspicion as a fifth column within the church. The Spanish Inquisition was created in order to deal with the converts that were neither quite Christian enough nor Spanish enough for the monarchs. Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabel of Castile married out of political necessity in 1462. The joining of their families also united their two kingdoms, giving northern Spain a unified Catholic faith and language. In 1478, the dual monarchy established the Spanish Inquisition. Although the Reconquista of Spain had taken centuries, it was Ferdinand and Isabella that completed the task in 1492, at which point they became the absolute monarchs of the entire country. By the end of the year, they would issue an expulsion decree to the country's Jewish citizens. Catholic Spain's first act upon regaining the country had been to eliminate one of its three peoples. For what it's worth, Ferdinand and Isabella were never personally anti-Semitic. 
both employed Jewish citizens and conversos in high positions. Isabella's confessor was a convert. At times, they both went out of their way to protect Jews within their court. The Inquisition, however, would go on to create a reign of terror and oppression in an attempt to eradicate Jewish culture from the global holdings of the Spanish Empire. There is no way that Juan de Leon of Aranda could know that the Inquisition would last for 300 years when he opined in 1492 that one should not grieve over their departure from Spain. For those Jews have had to drink down their death in one gulp. Whereas the rest of us have to stay behind among these wicked people, receiving death from them every day. Let's return back to that original question. Why did Ferdinand and Isabella feel compelled to create this institution? Isabella was the first of the two monarchs to jump on board. By the time of the eviction order in 1492, Conversos had been living in Spain for 77 years. Many converts had gone on to become true Christians. Strangely enough, though, many of those true converts would go on to become the most anti-Semitic among the Spanish. Among the Conversos, however, there were also a number of converts that had privately retained their Jewish religious beliefs while claiming to be a Christian. Adding to the confusion of who had become a true believer and who hadn't was the fact that nearly all of the initial converts maintained their Jewish cultural traits. You can easily understand that getting baptized didn't suddenly make these former kosher Jews want to instantly tear into a hog in order to enjoy bacon for the first time. Which was also a problem, considering that pork is the most common meat consumed in Spain. Cultural traditions have a tendency to linger. As we discussed in our first episode in this series, the Jewish people had successfully retained their cultural traditions for more than 3,000 years. These traditions survived both breakings of the temple, they survived the diaspora, they even survived the bubonic plague. Jewish heritage wasn't easily intimidated into submission by a splash of holy water. Conversos had a lot of relapses regarding Judaism something that became known in Spain as Judaizing. Worse, however, was the fact that children of conversos were still practicing Jewish cultural traits, including recognition of the Sabbath, circumcision, and eating meat on Christian holy days. This was despite the fact that they were baptized to Christianity as children. The Spanish monarchs came early to the conclusion that conversos were relapsing to Judaism because they were still surrounded by Jews who had resisted converting. To them, it was like continuing to have alcohol in the house while living with a recovered alcoholic. While the Jewish population may not have been dense, there were still synagogues throughout Spain and Aljamas that concentrated Jewish culture in ways that America's Chinatowns served to preserve their culture that had survived the prior conversion efforts. Thus, the originally spoken raison d'etat for the Spanish Inquisition 
was the filtering of true conversos versus those that were still holding on to, or worse, those that were actively participating Judaism. The plan was set in motion in 1478, with Ferdinand seeking permission from the Pope to set up an Inquisition office in Spain. This wasn't a new idea. The Inquisition had existed for hundreds of years throughout Europe. The Spanish Inquisition had one distinct difference, however, and it was one that Ferdinand had insisted upon. Instead of the Pope and his archbishops in charge of the tribunal, it would be set up, staffed, and governed directly and only by the Spanish monarchs. This aspect would go on to become the second reason for the creation of the Spanish Inquisition, the expansion of state power in Spain. Ferdinand was insistent upon this unique aspect of his Inquisition. He considered it clear, real politic. And it would become an instrument used to explicitly assert his authority. Through it, he would unite Spain under one centralized authority for the first time in its long history. The papal bull, or edict, authorizing the creation of the tribunal was titled Exigit Sincere Devotness, and it was dated November 1st, 1478. It was not yet all-encompassing, allowing later versions of the Catholic Church to divorce themselves from blame for the Inquisition's crimes against humanity. The order allowed Ferdinand and Isabella to appoint inquisitors in their kingdoms of Aragon and Castile something that they won't do until September 27, 1480. The delay suggests that the monarchs were hesitant to unleash their newfound powers, and there is some evidence for that hesitation. When members of the influential Santa Gels family were accused of Judaizing, the king went out of his way to protect them. However, Conversos in Seville pushed the issue with the publishing of illegal pamphlets that pushed the idea that it was possible to practice Christianity and Judaism simultaneously. Other pamphlets emphasized Conversos' superiority to old Christians as they shared the Jewish blood of Jesus. Lastly, in what had to be a final straw for some Christians, pamphlets suggested that Jews made for better Christians because only Jews were intelligent enough to not be taken in by the nonsense the Catholic priests said during Mass. Cardinal Tomas de Tocmada becomes the first Grand Inquisitor, the man that would be in charge of promoting and assigning inquisitors to the regions of Spain. Torquemada is regarded as the prototype of the fanatical and cruel Inquisitor. Spanish chronicler Sebastian de Olmedo referred to him as the hammer of heretics, the light of Spain, the savior of his country, the honor of his Dominican order. He was involved in this story from the very beginning. He established a rapport with Isabella when she was a princess. He was her confessor and advisor when she decided to marry Ferdinand. Torquemada was well known for his austerity and piety. He never ate meat, wore clothing made only of linen, and refused all honors previously offered to him. 
Some critics point to this refusal as good politics, as each promotion would have moved him farther away from the queen's court. Interestingly, Torquemada himself was a descendant of a Converso family. The first Grand Inquisitor oversaw the Inquisition for 15 years, expanding it from an operation in Seville to a permanent bureaucracy in more than two dozen territories. There would be a total of 45 Grand Inquisitors over the course of the Spanish Inquisition, which ran from 1480 to 1820. Since this was a political appointment that reported directly to the throne, monarchs were particularly vigilant in their choice of nominees, with loyalty as one of the key attributes they were looking for in a candidate. The minimum age for an inquisitor was 30. The inquisitor was to be a classical or religious court system placed under the control of the state. Spain had an advanced civil court system that was designed to deal with typical crimes. Their procedures dramatically differed from the Inquisition, as its name would imply. In Latin, inquiro means I seek out, and Inquisition is a search. Unlike the accusatory process that Roman and American law is based upon, the Inquisition allowed the inquisitor or judge to operate even without an accuser initiating legal action. Public rumor on its own was reason enough. The position combined policing and judicial powers. Jews were beyond their reach, however, as they existed outside of the jurisdiction of the Inquisition, as it presided only over Christian cases. For those Jews that illegally remained after 1492, the civil courts had loan jurisdiction. Thus, the early bearers of the over-eagerness of the Inquisition were the Christian conversos. Seville, the first province for the Holy Office, was also the first test of its power. From the very beginning, Conversos plotted against the appointment of an inquisitor with a violent uprising. A wealthy Conversos merchant, Don Diego de Susana, convened a meeting of powerful Conversos to plan an armed rebellion against the newly formed Inquisition. His daughter, Susanna, feared that her old Christian boyfriend would be put in danger due to his association with her family. Even though the planning was only in its infancy, she confessed the plot to her boyfriend, who promptly reported them to the Holy Office. The group was soon arrested, tried by the Inquisition, and most, including Susanna's father, were executed. Susanna herself has become a legend in Seville. After the arrest, she supposedly never left her apartments and arranged for her head to hang from the windowsill of her apartment upon her death. The head hung for months, until it was replaced with an oil lamp. Today a skull, along with her name, adorn a plaque visible from the street marking the home of La Hermosa Hebra, the pretty woman. 
The plotters' fears of the Seville Inquisition was, in fact, warranted. Between 1481 and 1488, 700 executions and thousands of other sentences, mostly life imprisonment, were handed out by the new court. Pope Sextus IV was horrified by the stories that emerged from Seville. It quickly became apparent that the Spanish Inquisition was not merely another medieval inquisition, but a new entity all unto itself. Despite Torquemada's status as a cardinal, it was clear that he was more loyal to his monarchs than Rome. Against the Pope's calls for the disbanding of the institution, Ferdinand brought heavy diplomatic pressure against the pontiff. The letter that the Spanish king sent to the Pope includes barely veiled threats. Quote, Things have been told to me, Holy Father, which if true would seem to merit the greatest astonishment. It is said that your holiness has granted the conversos a general pardon for all the errors and offenses they have committed. To these rumors, however, we have given no credence, because they seem to be things which would in no way have been conceded by your holiness, who have a duty to the Inquisition. But if by chance concessions have been made through the persistence and cunning persuasion of the said conversos, I intend never to let them take effect. Take care, therefore, not to let the matter go further, and to revoke any concessions and entrust us with the care of this question." End quote. In the end, Ferdinand was forced to accept zero conditions, and categorically refused to allow those that were sentenced any appeal to Rome and the Vatican City. Upon the Pope's death, his successor, Innocent VIII, gave Isabella and Ferdinand the right to appoint Torquemada's successor upon his retirement. Seville was the epicenter of the Judaizing pamphlets. The king and queen believed that the introduction of the Inquisition would force conversos to fully embrace Christianity. This would create a utopia, where there would be nothing to distinguish the conversos from the rest of Christian Spain, and that anti-Semitism, the world's oldest hatred, would just magically disappear from Spanish society. As you know, it didn't work. Instead of looking at the lack of results and re-examining the mission of the Inquisition, the monarchs excused the failings and did what so many kings and queens have done throughout the ages. They scapegoated the Jews for their own failures. While there weren't a lot of them left after the violence of 1391, the monarchs believed that the presence of actual Jews in Spain prevented the full conversion of the conversos. Armed with this conclusion, they issued an edict for the expulsion of all Jews from Spain. They were not the first European nation to author an exclusion order. England had expelled all of its Jews in 1290. The expulsion order occurs in 1492, the same year that Ferdinand and Isabella would approve of Christopher Columbus's voyage to find a new route to India. Forced expulsion from your home nation is clearly a horrible act. 
but the evidence points to the Catholic monarchs truly believing that they were doing good. The expulsion of the Jews would remove a section of dependable taxpayers from their nation and be interpreted by pure nations in history as a horrible act of anti-Semitism. Torquemada was the loudest proponent of the decision. The Queen's personal writings revealed that she knew the act of expulsion would result in economic stagnation and the loss of valuable revenue for the state. They believed that the end result would be a reduction of anti-Semitism, not an increase. The fact of the matter was that the actions of 1492 not only prolonged anti-Semitism, it strengthened it. Before we detail the increase in anti-Semitism, let's look at what happened to the Spanish Jews. Some, unwilling to leave their homes, converted to Christianity. This group formed a new set of conversos in Spain. Those that decided to retain their faith had to quickly pack up and move. The expulsion order dictated that all Jews had to leave within four months. Seeking to limit the economic damage, the monarchs included the stipulation that Jews were not allowed to take any gold or silver, including minted coins, the main source of money at this point in history, with them. Supply and demand is not kind to those put in situations like this. Over 100,000 Jews had to liquidate all of their property and belongings at the same time. The fact that there were so many expelled meant that supply greatly outstripped demand, forcing prices to rock-bottom lows. Furthermore, everyone knew the date of expulsion. Thus, they could just wait till the last minute, when the sellers were absolutely desperate to be gone. Lastly, they had to accept a portable currency which further limited them to buyers' whims as stating that their offer was the best anyone would be able to give them. There were no other alternatives. Those that stayed without converting faced execution, if caught. Those that left became known as the Sephardic Jews, who dispersed generally to four different areas. North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, Portugal, and Italy. Tragedy followed them. Many of those that traveled to Northern Africa were enslaved, as North Africa, particularly Morocco, was experiencing a famine. Refugees to Portugal found peace initially. The Portuguese king pledged that the Inquisition would not come to Portugal for 40 years. The word of King Emmanuel I wasn't worth much, however, and Portuguese Jews were subjected to forced conversions as early as four years upon their arrival. The persecution is eerily similar to those that fled the rise of the Nazis to neighboring Poland, only to have the evil follow them across the neighboring border. Another large group went to Italy but Ferdinand's estates in Italy eventually extended his reach to the Italian peninsula. Those that fared the best were the Jews that ventured the furthest, heading to the Ottoman Empire, where Sultan Bayezid II dispatched his navy to ensure their safe arrival. He is alleged to have said, those who say that Ferdinand and Isabella are wise are indeed fools. 
for he gives me, his enemy, his national treasure, the Jews. Many of those the left found the experience so terrible that they returned to Spain, the only home they had ever known. On November 10, 1492, seven months after the Edict of Expulsion, it became official policy that civil and church authorities would witness the baptism of returnees and that they would be allowed to reacquire any property that they had previously been forced to sell. Even better, it would be returned to them for the same price at which it had been sold. Acts like this made it clear that Isabel and Ferdinand were most interested in conversion rather than exclusion. So how did the Inquisition function? When you look into it, it's much less of a monster and much more of a clearly delineated bureaucracy. Inquisitions were neither new nor unique to Spain. The medieval Inquisition had existed for centuries. But the Spanish Inquisition differed in two respects. First of all, the Inquisitors were subservient only to the monarchs of Spain rather than the Pope. Secondly, it became a permanent feature of the Spanish system rather than a temporary measure. The king and queen appointed a Grand Inquisitor, the first of whom was Tomás de Tocmada. The Grand Inquisitor would then appoint individual inquisitors to the provinces of Spain. It was typical throughout the Spanish Inquisition era for a province to have two inquisitors, but there were occasions when three operated concurrently. The inquisitors were both prosecutors and judges. They did not have to be members of the clergy, but oftentimes were. The best inquisitors had a training and background in legal scholarship. Towards the end of the inquisition, however, it was no longer a prerequisite to be university trained. Each inquisitor would run a network of familiars. These unpaid positions served as the eyes and ears of the Inquisition. The creation of a network of familiars within each tribunal district was the first task for a newly appointed Inquisitor. Records in the Castile Concordia suggested that there were 805 familiars in Toledo, 554 in Granada, and 1,009 for Galatia. At the height of the Inquisition, there were more than 20,000 familiars, enough to count as a supplementary private police force. In Valencia, there was a ratio of one familiar for every 42 households. Inquisitors looked for the purest of bloodlines when choosing their familiars, individuals who didn't have any suspicion attached to their name. Although they were unpaid positions, Carrying the title of a familiar unlocked the right to bear arms for the position holder, but the purpose of this was purely for protecting inquisitors when they were near. Torquemada regularly traveled in the presence of 250 armed familiars. 
The position also carried the added benefit of bestowing exclusive criminal jurisdiction to the inquisitorial courts rather than the civil ones. This meant that a familiar could only be tried by the inquisitor who had chosen them for the position in the first place. As one might suspect, this near immunity resulted in a number of familiars acting above the law and becoming corrupt. Eventually, familiars became exempt from certain taxes and had to be lodged at the expense of the town's residents. In 1598, in Seville, the lodgings given to the inquisitors weren't up to their high standards, and they withdrew in protest. After excommunicating those who had made the arrangements and thus removing them permanently from the church and therefore heaven, all this outrage occurred with the backdrop of the funeral of King Philip II, which had to be rescheduled as a result. This level of privilege paints a different picture of the officers of the Holy Office than reality suggests. Familiars were intended to be spies, the eyes and ears of the church. Inquisition records, however, which were exquisitely kept, show that the majority of denunciations were made by ordinary people and not familiars. Familiars, on the other hand, were regarded with disdain and suspicion. Where there were conversos on the town council, they oftentimes faced discrimination. As time went on, the number of familiars declined, implying that the post, even with some extra privileges, was not much sought after. This, plus other evidence, suggests that the Inquisition never built up an organizational apparatus for social control. In fact, most Spaniards never saw an Inquisitor during their lifetime. Each Inquisitor was afforded their own secretary, a fiscal or public prosecutor, a police officer for the arrest, a receiver, a nuncio, a porter, a magistrate that was responsible for administrating the property that was sequestered and confiscated, as well as their own doctor. The doctor, as well as the inquisitor, had to be present at any session that involved torture. The inquisition certainly utilized torture during its investigatorial process. However, the stories that come to mind when you hear the term Spanish Inquisition were greatly exaggerated, mostly by foreign Protestant sources. Before we get to torture, however, we need to start back at the beginning with the Edict of Grace. When the Inquisitor's attention became drawn to your town, an Edict of Grace would begin. Parish priests would announce the coming of the Inquisition to their members. It was typical for priests to quietly remind their clergy to stay silent in an attempt to protect their flock. They knew very early on that the Inquisition used a heavy hand where a defter touch was warranted. The Edict of Grace began a 30-day period where citizens were told to confess all sins and to let the Inquisition know 
about anyone else's sins that they knew about. They made it clear that any sins found after the grace period had ended would be dealt with significantly more harshly. The familiars would collect all denunciations and pass them along to the prosecutor to decide who would face charges. After drawing up those preliminary charges, the prosecutor would investigate and interrogate the witnesses before passing on the court deliberations to the Inquisitor. The Inquisition was not quick to arrest. Torquemada's own instructions encouraged Inquisitors to defer the arrest and wait until more conclusive testimony and evidence had been gathered. This was done for practical reasons, as an arrest served to put the heretic on notice that he was being investigated. An arrest, or clamorosa, occurred simultaneously with the confiscation of property. This was necessary because of the single largest flaw regarding the institution, namely, that the Inquisition was never given an operating budget. This is perhaps the strongest piece of evidence that Ferdinand never intended for the Inquisition to become a permanent institution. As a separate court system, the Inquisition had to purchase its own buildings, pay its employees, and house prisoners. Their prison cells were typically rented out of private castles that were no longer utilized by the kingdom. Prisoners were able to decide the level of comfort that they wished to have, as they paid for it via the sequestration of property upon their arrest. A larger prison cell and better meals would cost the defendant more of his or her own money. One could even hire in a servant who would work for them. Inquisitors typically came from law schools and thus were very careful with their investigations. This meant that the defendant typically spent a long time awaiting trial. A false accusation could quickly impoverish the family of the accused. Besides the occasional servant, the only person that a defendant was allowed to see during pre-trial detainment were their lawyers. The defendant even had to pay for any paper that was requested to help prepare their defense. The fact that the Inquisition had to appropriate funds from its victims left them exposed to accusations that they were just lining their own pockets. America showed the danger of letting a police organization control its means of funding. Riots broke out in 2014 after officers killed unarmed Michael Brown, an African-American youth who was walking away from the officers. As riots consumed Ferguson, Missouri, many wondered at why Michael Brown would ignore a police officer's orders. A national investigation found that the precinct head started over-ticketing minorities in and around Ferguson in order to make up for a shortfall of state funding. Instead of firing beloved officers, the organization paid for their contracts by writing tickets for one mile over the speed limit, as well as jaywalking. That created a great deal of distrust between the African-American community and the officers of Ferguson. Distrust that led Michael Brown to ignore the officers' calls to stop walking away from him. Bernaldez, a chronicler of Seville, 
said it was noticeable that the great number of prosecutions were against moneyed men. By 1504, an accused asked his jailer, why is it that only the rich were burnt by the Inquisition and not the poor? The crown was complicit in any get-rich scheme, as they were entitled to one-third of the property that the Inquisition claimed. The Holy Office had three routes for obtaining money. First of all, fines, which could be levied at any rate desired. Then there was the ability for them to assign a penance. These were more formal and were usually only given during auto de fe's, a solemn occasion that we will get to. And lastly, there was the ability to commute your punishment by paying the Inquisition vast sums of money. It is probably not the smartest idea to make it so that an Inquisitor cannot afford to eat unless they find someone to burn. During times of shortages, Inquisitors would have to travel to faraway towns seeking out new criminals to punish. Eventually, local parishes agreed to divert some of their own funding to keep the Inquisition alive. In 1578, operating expenses exceeded income by 14.6%, and by 1661, it was running a yearly deficit of 33.8%, as the bureaucracy absorbed a larger portion of revenue. In Cordoba, salaries consumed 75.6% of their income. Capitalism offered a temporary solution for some districts. In what were known as censos, the Inquisition would rent out properties that they had seized in an attempt to make a larger profit than they would have through a one-time sale. Essentially, they ran their own system of Airbnbs. Secrecy surrounded everything that happened following an arrest. This intense secrecy was a double-edged sword for the Inquisition. The fear of the unknown and the rumors that swirled about the Inquisition's dungeons surely terrified many accused into making early confessions. But it also meant that the Inquisition stayed silent in the face of the worst accusations against it. The Inquisition was so secretive that they never published any actual set of laws, meaning it was impossible to know what the court thought was illegal in the first place. The Inquisition's methods violate most of the rights enshrined in the United States Bill of Rights. Unannounced on the day that suited the Inquisitors, the detainee was brought before his judges. He was seated having stood only to hear the accusation read out to him. This first hearing was designed to establish the identity and past history of the accused. He was questioned about his parents, his grandparents, the trades that he had plied, the towns where he had lived, his spouse, and their children. He then had to explain where he was raised and by whom, what studies he had pursued, any travels he had engaged in abroad, and in whose company. He was tested to see if he knew the principal prayers of Catholicism, and he was required to say where and when and to whom he last made his confession. This was the preliminary phase of the trial. 
immediately after which the inquisitors entered into the chamber. Giving no details, they invited the accused to tell them why he had been arrested and to make a full confession. This formal request or admonition was repeated three times over a period of several days. While they did hear what they were generally accused of, the accused never heard exactly what crime they were being accused of. Instead, they were presented with just the right to confess. This enforced ignorance oftentimes broke down the prisoner. If innocent, he remained lost in the wilderness trying to figure out what to confess to, or else confessed crimes that the Inquisition was not aware of. If they were guilty, he was left to wonder how much of the truth the Inquisition really knew, and whether it was just a trick to force them to confess. At this point, the defendant had to guess what evidence the court had against them. You can imagine that this led to many crimes being confessed to that the Inquisition might not have ever known about. The closest equivalent in America's legal system is when a police officer asks a driver if they know how fast they were going. The officer knows the answer to that question. If you say a number that is lower than what you were going, then they can shove your actual speed in your face. If you say a number higher than what the radar gun registered, then the officer is able to write the ticket for the speed that you just confessed to. But truly the best example is when a mother has caught a young child in the act and she says, you know what you did. Here's an example of the challenges the Spaniards faced. In 1568, a woman was detained and accused of not eating pork, something that most Jews refrained from, and of changing her linen on Saturdays. She was tortured on the porch row, or rack. The secretary had to be present at every torture session so that he or she could accurately write down the confession. Also present at every torture was the torturer, as the inquisitors did not ever do it themselves along with the doctor and the Inquisitor himself. Once strapped to the potro, the accused pleaded with the observers, Senors, why will you not tell me what I have to say? Senor, put me on the ground. Have I not said that I did it all? She was told to confess. She said, I don't remember. Take me away. I did what the witnesses say I did. She was then told to tell in detail what the witnesses said she did. She cried. Senors, as I have told you, I do not know for certain. I have said that I did all the witnesses say. Senors, release me, for I do not remember. She was again told to confess. She said, Senors, it does not help me to say that I did it. And I have admitted that what I have done has brought me to the suffering. Senor, you know the truth. Senors, for God's sake, have mercy on me. Oh, Senor, take these things off of my arms. Senor, release me. They are killing me. Do you not see how these people are killing me? I did it, she said. For God's sake, let me go. After the third warning to confess, the prosecutor eventually read the articles of accusation. 
These told the defendant what they were accused of. However, they were never allowed to know who had testified against them. The accused was then required to plead guilty or innocent on the spot with zero time to think or consult with the court-appointed lawyer. It's pretty amazing that they even gave them a court-appointed lawyer, as that was unique to the Spanish Inquisition. Prior inquisitions had not allowed for any defense lawyers, while the Spanish iteration mandated the presence of one. Paid for, of course, by the confiscation and sale of the defendant's possessions. The anonymous nature of all witnesses meant that neighbors could settle scores with those that they did not like through the Inquisition. The fact that denunciations were so prolific that the Inquisitors did not need to use their familiars as eyes and ears suggests that many neighbors turned on each other in each era of the Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is synonymous with torture, but that is mostly Protestant propaganda. The Spanish Inquisition used torture at a significantly lesser rate than most European courts of the time and at a lesser rate than the Spanish civil courts. For the Inquisition, torture was typically used as a last resort to elicit a confession. Those confessions given under torture were not allowed to be used in the court proceedings that followed. The Inquisition knew very well that victims would say anything to end the torture. Instead, those that confessed in this manner had to repeat that confession after the effects of the torture had worn off. Because the Spanish Inquisition forbade anyone from being tortured twice, however, they rarely ended a torture session, and instead just suspended it for the moment so that they could resume it at a later time. Torture was most used at the beginning of the Inquisition, with Torquemada being known as one of the most aggressive and bloodthirsty Grand Inquisitors. In Granada from 1573 to 1577, only 18 out of the 256 accused were ever subjected to torture. That translates to about 7% of the accused. In Seville from 1606 to 1612, only 11% were tortured and finally, in 1816, four years before the end of the Inquisition, the Pope forbade any tribunal subject from being tortured. Despite evidence from websites all over the world, the Spanish Inquisition only used three torture techniques during confession. This was because church law dictated that the Holy Office could not kill, nor could they shed blood in the search for heresy. The doctor was present for each session to make sure that the victim wouldn't fall prey to an over-exuberant torturer. All of the methods used were common throughout Europe, and none were unique to the Inquisition. The first tool used was the garrucha. In this, the prisoner's hands were tied at the wrist behind their back, and the victim was raised high in the air, sometimes as much as 30 feet. Heavy weights were then attached to the victim's feet, and then they were suddenly dropped. Before hitting the ground, the rope would pull tight, jerking the prisoner's arms out of their shoulder sockets. Dislocated arms and legs can be excruciatingly painful. The second tool at their disposal was the toca, 
a form of water torture, very similar to waterboarding. The accused was tied down on the rack, and his mouth was forcibly kept open. The torturer then put a toka, or linen cloth, down his throat to act as a conduit for water that was poured slowly from a jar. The Inquisition could increase or decrease the pain level of this torture by changing how much water was consumed. The third method was the most commonly used after the 16th century. It was the forementioned potro, or rack. In this, the accused were bound tightly on a rack by cords, which were passed round your torso and limbs. The torturer could then turn a wheel and tighten the cords around your body, biting into your flesh. In all three torture methods, the accused were stripped nearly completely naked, and there was no age limit for victims. Women aged between 70 and 90 were recorded as having been put on the potra, and in 1607, a girl aged 13 was subjected to torture. While in prison, the Inquisition had two tools to use with unruly prisoners. Some were gagged for continuing to blaspheme. The second tool was a pie de amigo, a large and sharp iron fork that was tied between your chin and your chest. Letting your head fall down and not looking your confessor in the eye would then result in an intense stab wound. Prisoners were never let to rot in their cells, however. Even life imprisonment via the Spanish Inquisition courts was only a sentence of 10 years. During the trial, the defense was only allowed to offer written arguments on the behalf of their clients. There were no cross-examination of witnesses. The records of this court constitute the fullest prosecution records to survive for any judicial tribunal of early modern times. Being able to see the statistics, it becomes easy to divide the Spanish Inquisition into four distinct phases. The first was focused on conversos and lasts from 1480 to 1530. The second phase is a relatively quiet early 16th century where the Inquisition focused on the group known as Old Christians. The third period pitted the Inquisition versus Protestants and Moriscos, Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And a fourth phase was the 17th century where the Inquisition battled witches. With the power of the prosecution, the defense, and the judge in the hands of the Inquisition, they were typically able to extract a guilty verdict. The Inquisition almost never found anyone innocent of what they had been accused of. Acquittal meant admitting an error was made in the arrest of the victim. Therefore, it became common to suspend cases rather than end them. Toledo averaged less than two acquittals a year from 1484 to 1531. Suspension of a verdict meant that the trial could start up again at any time that new evidence came to light. Once confessed or found guilty, there were four punishment options available for the Inquisition to choose from. Sometimes a penance was assigned, which could involve anything from saying a few prayers or donating all of your money to a predetermined cause, what we would call restitution. Flogging was regularly prescribed but only used against those of low social status. 
The condemned would be whipped through the streets, naked to the waist, and often mounted on a donkey for greater shame. One hundred lashes were common. Prison time could be called for, all at the expense of the victim of their family. The death penalty was the third option available. Additionally, the Inquisition could assign an extra punishment meant to shame the victim along with any of the other punishments. In this, the victim would have to wear a San Benito every time they went outside of their house for the rest of their life. The term means corruption in Latin. And this full-length vest and accompanying hat told everyone that saw them that they had run afoul of the Inquisition. The embarrassment for the family would last even after the victim's death, as a San Benito replica was sent to the local parish church that the accused had belonged to for eternal display, being hung with the victim's name attached to it. The fourth punishment option was devised by Ferdinand himself, as prisoners would be sentenced to serve as a rower next to slaves on a Spanish galley ship. Next to death, this was the most feared of the available options. This sentence typically lasted for less than five years and was the common punishment for bigamy and sodomy. The secular, civil Spanish courts could sentence a criminal to the galleys for life. The Inquisition in Mexico created a unique punishment, first administered in 1664, where they smeared a penitent with honey and feathers while condemning him to the heat for hours. Executions were held as an elaborate ceremony in what was known as an auto de fe. When fated to die, the victim would be notified the night before so that he can prepare his soul for confession and repentance. Such a short time also helped to prevent appeals. But the auto de fe process would have begun months earlier as these served a number of purposes. The crowd level suggested that there was a large buy-in factor by the people of the time. The autos served as entertainment in a world without the internet, or even books for the beginning of the story. There's no doubt that the autos were popular. They were held with great fanfare in the largest available public squares. A month before the proceedings, carpenters would descend on the town or village to build an elaborate stage. Priests were obligated to proclaim the date of the ceremony at all masses. Breakfast was included for all those at the morning mass, including the condemned. Then a midday meal is served before the procession and the mass begins. As would be expected, religion was at the front and center of the proceedings, and in the early afternoon, the reconciliation of the sinners would occur. At this point, the sinner would confirm their confession to the crowd. This was important for a few reasons. Number one, the Spanish Inquisition wanted to make it clear that they were only punishing the guilty. That allowed everyone to enjoy the proceedings more and prevented the rising of any martyrs against the cause. Anyone that was considered a risk was gagged for the entire proceedings of the auto. But secondly, and more importantly, the point of the auto de fe was not to save the heretic's soul, but to ensure that the public was terrified of sinning. It served the purpose of portraying hell as the singular worst place imaginable. If it is so terrible, one might be willing to do anything to avoid it. It was not enough for the heretic to admit that they had sinned and declare that they had repented. He must be made to do so publicly so that it served as a lesson to all the faithful. 
seeing the public execution was viewed purely through the lens of preventing more heresy. It is important to look through every action that the Inquisition took through this lens. They did not care as much about your human body as they did your heavenly soul, hence why they administered the Eucharist to those condemned to die. The burnings were the most spectacular component of the auto, but they were the least necessary part of the proceedings. Most of the autos took place without a single piece of wood being set alight, and more victims were burned in effigy than in person. There was one incentive to go along with the proceedings. A penitent that repented for the crowd was relaxed as the euphemism that the Spanish used quietly as the flames were lit. They did this via a chain that they wrapped around the victim's neck, and as soon as the fire was lit, a guard would tighten the chain and strangle the victim to death. Those that refused to confirm their earlier confession as it was read were left for the flames which could take a number of agonizing hours before your death. There were staggering numbers that went through an auto, which was never done on a consistent basis. Madrid once went 50 years between autos. Remember that most were not burned. It is believed that the speed record for an auto de fe was set in Toledo in 1486, where the tribunal managed to deal with 900 reconciliations. After any deaths, the ashes were scattered throughout the fields or into a river, and a San Benito with the victim's name on it was hung in their local church. There was no age limit on those that were condemned to die. Women aged 80 and the boys in their teens were burned. The Inquisition was proud of their actions. They even commissioned a series of paintings by Pedro Berguarte to celebrate the auto de fe. Ferdinand and Isabella never attended one, but the monarchs that followed claimed that they were can't-miss appointments. Now that we have a better understanding of how the Spanish Inquisition operated, let's turn our attention back to the first era or phase of the Inquisition, that of dealing with the Jewish conversos. This period lasted for 20 years. It was the only period of time that the Inquisition made money. It was easy to find a reason to denounce a converso as Jewish if they held on to any cultural traits. Most Jews at the time didn't eat pork, which is the number one meat in Spanish cuisine. That meant that anyone who didn't like the taste of pork was immediately suspect. They could be accused. If they didn't know their prayers perfectly, or they missed church, or, even worse, forgot to fast on a holy day, the majority seemed to have been dragged before the court on the basis of gossip personal malice, communal prejudice, and simple hearsay. According to a Jewish chronicler at the time, conversos testified against conversos who would not pay them. The best option for some was to confess every mistake they ever made. Juan de Chinchilla, a tailor of Ciudad Real, made the mistake in 1483 of admitting to Jewish practices after the Edict of Grace had expired in his city. The only witnesses against him spoke of things they had seen 16 years earlier. He was relaxed at the stake. Harsh results like this had the opposite effect and caused individuals not trust the Inquisition, and they soon buried their beliefs and truths. If you judge the Inquisition by whether or not it accomplished its assigned task, you have to find that the Spanish Inquisition was a complete success. 
Records show that the number of cases brought against conversos for Judaizing steadily declined after the initial 20 years, which once again I will point out were the harshest years of the Inquisition. But this is likely due to the longevity of the mission, rather than something they directly caused. By 1532, anyone punished for Judaizing at the age of 50 would have had to have been 10 years old in 1492. Anyone younger than that would have been too young to remember the Jewish environment and practices of their family. After the 1530s, the collective memory of Judaism disappeared from the Iberian Peninsula. The Inquisition had erased it from its collective consciousness. There were a few subtle reminders, such as Hebrew being taught as a language study at select universities, but for the most part it just ceased to be. By the 1540s, conversos had virtually disappeared from Inquisition trials. Feelings against Jews showed themselves more in the prejudiced language rather than in direct persecution. Interestingly enough, the Inquisition had to deal with policing Christians from using the term Jew as an insult to another Christian. This isn't to say that there weren't Jews in Spain. They just got significantly better at hiding. These crypto-Jews, as they came to be known, stopped practicing circumcision as it made their children liable to discovery. Synagogue meetings were impossible as it was illegal to celebrate the Sabbath. So Jewish citizens would make subtle celebrations or shift them to a different day, hoping nobody figured out. The Inquisition did its best to root out these Jews. But as you can tell from the following script that was sent out to be read at Mass, they weren't very good at it. Here's what a priest read. If you know or have heard of anyone who keeps the Sabbath according to the law of Moses, by putting on clean sheets and other new garments, and putting clean clothes on the table and clean sheets on the bed for feast days in honor of the Sabbath, and using no light from Friday evening onwards. Or if they have purified the meat they are to eat by bleeding it in water, or have cut the throats of cattle or birds they were eating, either in certain words and covering the blood with earth, or have eaten meat in Lent and other days forgiven by Holy Mother Church, or have fasted the great fast going barefooted that day, or if they say Jewish prayers at night begging forgiveness of each other, the parents place in their hands on the heads of their children without making the sign of the cross or saying anything but be blessed by God and by me or if they bless the table in the Jewish way, or if they recite the Psalms without the Gloria Patri, or if any woman keeps 40 days after childbirth without entering a church, or if they circumcise their children or give them a Jewish name, or if after baptism they wash the place where the oil and chrism was put, or if anyone on his deathbed turns to the wall to die, and when he is dead, they wash him with hot water, shaving the hair off all parts of his body. There was internal debate within the Inquisition whether or not listing the traditions of the Jewish people meant that the Inquisition was keeping the beliefs alive. You can imagine a boy turning to his mother during Mass and asking, why is it bad to turn towards a wall when you're dying? As the Inquisition went on, fewer cases of Judaizing were brought forth, and even fewer involved relaxing the accused. In Catalonia, for instance, only seven victims were burnt in 1488, and in 1489, there were only three. Even though the numbers declined, it was clear who the Inquisition initially targeted. 
In Catalonia, between 1488 and 1505, only 8 out of the 1,199 arrested were non-conversos. We will end on a sinister note, which is probably the tone that this type of talk deserves to end on. If you are thinking that these Dominican friars and monks that made up the majority of the inquisitors were awful, terrible, and evil, you're probably right. Many of them thought they were doing God's work, as well as the king's. They did it deliberately and within a clearly delineated, although secretive, set of rules. But there surely were those that knew what they did was wrong and still pursued it anyways. One such individual was Lucero. Appointed as the Inquisitor of Cordoba in 1499, Lucero relaxed more individuals than any other Inquisitor. In 1504, he burned alive 120 victims, and then another 27 a few months later in 1505. The purpose of these auto de fe's were to cover up a corruption scheme that he headed. He had made a career out of extortion, arresting leading citizens on trifling or false pretenses in order to seize their property. Witnesses in 1500 testified that he had forced conversos to teach Jewish prayers to old Christian prisoners so that Lucero could then accuse those up the economic ladder of Judaizing. Lucera was removed by the king in late 1506, right before he was set to relax another 160 people to the flames. Corruption existed at all levels of the Inquisition, with subordinates able to line their pockets at will. Among the more notorious cases was a scribe who locked up a young girl of 15, stripped her naked, and whipped her until she agreed to testify against her mother. And in Toledo in 1487, a familiar had managed to steal $1.5 million worth of confiscated goods that were meant for the Inquisition. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.